The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. We know that at the cross, Jesus Christ paid the penalty for every single sin in human history. As we'll see in our lesson this morning, God the Father has known everything simultaneously throughout all eternity. So that means that there's nothing that you or I can ever do that will ever surprise or shock God. Now, it may surprise us. It may shock us. We may completely offend ourselves by our own sinfulness and depravity, but it hasn't surprised God at all because billions and billions of years ago in eternity past, God the Father knew every single sin that you would ever commit in your lifetime. And all of those sins were paid for completely and totally on the cross by Jesus Christ. We can add nothing to that. His sacrifice was a perfect sacrifice. At the instant you put your faith alone in Christ alone, at that moment, two things happen. First of all, you are entered into an eternal relationship with God. And secondly, you are entered into a temporal relationship with God. The eternal relationship is described in Scripture as being in Christ. You cannot lose that. Nothing you can ever do in your life will sever you or separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. However, we do commit sins. When we are in fellowship with God and walking by means of the Holy Spirit, the Bible says that that is being filled by means of the Holy Spirit. But when we sin, commit a sin of a mental attitude sin, such as anger, jealousy, arrogance, um, uh, mental attitude sins of revenge, motivation, things like that, then we are instantly out of fellowship. And the Bible calls that the status of carnality or being controlled by the flesh or the sin nature. To recover fellowship, to re, uh, recover the filling of the Holy Spirit, be restored to fellowship with God, and to resume our spiritual life and walk with the Lord, we have to use 1 John 1.9. It's very simple. The issues of the sin in our life is between us and the Lord. It is not between us and somebody else. Uh, the Scriptures are very clear that there is only one God and one mediator, the man Christ Jesus. So we began every Bible class... Every time we go to look at God's Word, we need to make sure that we are filled with God's Spirit so that we can understand the doctrine that's there and apply it to our lives. So let's begin by bowing our heads, closing our eyes, a few moments of silent prayer, and then we will begin. Father, we do thank You so much for the opportunity, the privilege, the freedom that we have to assemble ourselves together this morning that we can study Your Word. Father, Your Word is indeed a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It illuminates the world around us and we move and operate within the realm of darkness, the kingdom of darkness, the Scripture says. And the only way in which we can survive, the only way in which we can learn how to live, how to make right decisions, how to handle the... Uh, sufferings, the adversities in our life is through Your Word. So, Father, now as we come to Your Word, we ask that God the Holy Spirit would make these truths clear to us that we might 
then store them in our soul to apply them at the proper time. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. One of these days, I'm going to figure out how to keep my Bible up here and wait the page. I'm not sure what this is for. <laughs> if this is an anti-personnel device or what, but maybe that will wait the page of my Bible sufficiently so it doesn't blow everywhere. Well, there. We'll just have to balance it just right. Nobody breathe too hard. We're in Galatians chapter 1, in the section between verse 11 and verse 17. Let's remind ourselves of what's going on in Galatians, orient ourselves to the basics, basic outline of this epistle. The first major section is the introduction. This is comprised of verses 1 through 10. Divided into two sections, verses 1 through 5 are the salutation which Paul addresses himself to the church in Galatia, the believers that he left there after his first missionary journey into southern Galatia where he uh, evangelized or witnessed to them and they established churches in various cities. Uh, Derby, Lystra, and Iconium were the three major cities. And in there he emphasizes the main themes of this epistle. One is his apostolic authority, which we find in verse 1. And secondly, is the doctrine of, the ju- of justification by faith, faith alone in Christ alone, and its implications for our lives in terms of the freedom that we have in Christ. Now, most people don't understand the doctrine of spiritual freedom very much, and we'll spend a lot of time discussing it. But spiritual freedom does not mean you can do whatever you want to do now that you're a believer. That's what's called antinomianism. That's a big word, so I'll write it on the board for you. Antinomianism. It means against the law. This is from the Greek word namas, meaning the law. And it's saying, you know, there's no rules and regulations in in, uh, Christianity. We're under grace. But that is a distortion of the truth. We are under grace, but that doesn't mean we can do whatever we want to do. Freedom for the believer, as it's defined in Scripture, is that we are free from the power, the domination of the sin nature. There are three phases in salvation. Phase one occurs at the cross. This is sometimes called, often called in Scripture, justification. At that point, we are saved from the penalty of sin. That means that never again do you have to worry about eternal condemnation in the lake of fire. In phase two, which is the Christian life, we are saved from the power of sin in our life. It no longer dominates us. This is the theme of Romans chapter 6, which talks about the fact that we are no longer bond slaves to the sin nature. A bond slave has to do what its master tells it to do. He has no option. We are no longer slaves because we have been freed. We have been delivered. This is the term that Paul uses here in verse 1-4, Jesus Christ who gave Himself as a substitute for our sins that He might deliver us. 
So that's the theme. He gave it Himself as a substitute for our sins. It has to do with phase one salvation, justification by faith alone, delivering us from the present evil age is freedom, deliverance from the power of sin. We are free not to follow the dictates of our sin nature. That's what freedom relates to. And then phase three is called glorification when we are absent from the body and face to face with the Lord for eternity in heaven. That's introduced in the first five verses. Then in verses 6 through 10, Paul expresses his amazement and astonishment, even shock, that these Galatian believers have so quickly deserted the gospel of grace. They have gone from a the true gospel to a different gospel. They, they no longer believe that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone, but instead that they must do something. And this is because a group of people followed Paul into this area. We call them Judaizers because what they wanted to do was return these Christians to a position under the Mosaic Law, that it was not only important to believe and have faith in Christ, but you must also add to it obedience to the mandates of the Mosaic Law. So Paul expresses his condemnation there. And part of this is that they condemned Paul. First of all, they said that he was, he was not an apostle. He had no relationship to the apostles in Jerusalem, so there was no reason to listen to Paul any more than anybody else. Point number two, they said that salvation was faith plus and that the spiritual life or the Christian life was also faith plus. So, works dominated. The problem with works is that it makes us feel good because somehow we've done something to help God, but the fact is we can do nothing to help God. And the point is, faith plus anything equals nothing. When you begin to add something to faith, it destroys God did everything for us at the cross. Christ paid it all, and all we have to do is simply accept it. That's the difference between religion and Christianity. Christianity is a relationship. Religion teaches that we must do something to gain God's approval. We have to go to church. We have to uh, uh, go through various religious exercises. Somehow this impresses God with our contrition, with our sincerity, and all of these things. But contrition, sincerity, never mattered to God. God is not impressed by what we do. God is only impressed by what Jesus Christ did. And to understand grace is the most incredible thing that we can ever grasp in our lives. Because grace means that we can relax completely in what God has done. And most people don't understand it and they're just offended by it. I remember... A seminary, uh, a friend of mine in seminary, I did not have this particular class or this particular, particular instructor, and he really got the idea from Lewis Berry Chafer. Chafer used to do this in his evangelism classes years ago when he was still alive. He died in 1952. He was the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary. And uh, Dr. Chafer and this guy would teach a course on evangelism. And after three or four weeks of co- uh, the class, it was just a, a short segment of the total semester course on the doctrines of salvation. And uh, 
you know, the guys would go home and the final was coming up and you'd cram and you'd cram and it's finals week and, and you know what it's like to go through any kind of final exam or testing and, and so everybody would just have to cram all night. You've got two or three exams that day and everybody would work hard and you would come in and they would give you the blue books. Blue books were special exam books that you would have that just had a blue cover and uh, you might burn up two or three of them, filling them with all the answers to all the questions. And you just sit there and you take the test and you write out all your essay answers and just unload all this knowledge you've crammed into your head uh, in preparation for the exam. And then you take the test up and you put it up on the professor's desk and you just set it down there. And Dr. Chafer would just pick up the exam and set it on his desk and write A plus on the top. He wouldn't even open it up to see what was inside. He just put A-plus in there. Now, if you were a student who had crammed and crammed and crammed the night before, how would you feel the guy next to you had not studied at all, came in there, wrote three pages, and that was it, because he hadn't studied, wasn't prepared, busy working on his Hebrew final, and just thought he could ace the evangelism final. And this guy comes in there and just barely writes anything, throws it up there, and he gets an A-plus. And you've worked, and you fill up three blue books with all of your wonderful wisdom and knowledge, and you put that there, and you get the exact same grade. And some of these guys would get really upset. I mean, they would just get angry that the professor would do this. But he was teaching the most important point they would ever learn in the whole gospel class, and that is what grace was. It had nothing to do with who and what you are. It has everything to do with who and what Jesus Christ is. So that, this is the most important thing that we can ever learn in our lives is the doctrine uh, of grace. So we come to the next section. This is the next major section in the book where Paul establishes his credentials for his apostolic authority. And this is from 111 down to the end of chapter 2, all focuses on Paul's apostolic authority, that he is who he claims to be, and he has the right to say what he does, and he has the authority behind it. He establishes this in the first two verses. He lays down the proposition that he received the gospel directly from God, not from men, and therefore, since he received a direct commission from Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, and he fits all the qualifications for an apostle, that he has this authority. So the issue there, as we saw in those verses, is understanding authority and authority orientation. Then the next section, in verses 13 through 14, is Paul begins to establish the evidence for his authority. And that's 113 to 221. This is the whole section. 113 to 221 is going to be evidence supporting Paul's claim to, to authority from God not from not men. And he begins in verses 13 through 14 with evidence from his life prior to his conversion. He says, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. And we went over that in a detail last week looking at the passages in Acts that describe the episodes leading up to Paul's salvation and how uh, Paul, prior to his salvation, was uh, uh, trained up a Pharisee, that he had, a, uh, he had an obsession to destroy and annihilate Christianity, and he made it his primary purpose 
in life to, to ferret out everyone who claimed to be a follower of Jesus Christ and to make sure they were brought on trial and, if possible, to get them executed. His job, as he saw it, was to decimate, to annihilate. That's that word at the end of verse 13. He tried to destroy it, literally to decimate or annihilate it. He thought that was his job. And then he went on a trip to Damascus to arrest some believers there. And on the way, the Lord Jesus Christ personally appeared to him on the road to Damascus. That this was an objective experience. The Lord spoke only to him, so only he heard precisely what the Lord said. But those with him saw the light and heard the sound of the Lord's voice. So it was not some internal, subjective experience, but it was a real experience that had objective verification from others. God never does something subjectively that he doesn't also validate objectively. Always remember that. There's a lot of times when people think they have some kind of experience with God. They feel like God wants them to do this or feel like God wants them to do that. And as a professor of mine in seminary used to say, I always want to know what the difference is between that feeling and gas. You know, when you start asking people, how do you know that's really God and not just the fact that you happen to have a little excess of serotonin today and you just feel good and you're really on a high? Uh, and, and they can't do that. There has to be objective validation somewhere from the Scriptures or somewhere that this is really what God wants you to do. And you'll avoid a lot of misery in your life and making a lot of bad decisions if you just recognize that every time you feel like God wants you to do something, that it probably has more to do with your chemical balance that day and the fact that you're, you're, you, you feel good, you had a good night's sleep, um, you, you've uh, uh, just physically up or something, rather than that this is really God leading you. God always does what He wants to do. He makes it clear from an objective, verifiable uh, basis. Now we come to verse 15. In verse 15, we have our second line of evidence. The first is in 113 to two, uh, to, uh, through um, uh, 221, excuse me, 221 there, we see the evidence. Uh, Paul's describing his evidence from his convert, from uh, that his authority comes from God and not men. In verse 13 and 14, it's uh, uh, evidence prior to his conversion. And in 15 through 18, it is the evidence from his conversion. This is where we stopped last Sunday morning. But when he who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his Son in me, that I might proclaim Him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Now the point, I want, I, I want to get into some details here because there are some words and some phrases in this, these verses that are very important that as believers we have to understand the doctrine that lies behind these words. It's very important for us to understand these concepts. They reinforce a lot of other areas in Scripture, so we're going to, in our exegesis, analyze some important doctrines. But I don't want to lose the forest for the trees. Sometimes we get so caught up in analyzing you know, the cell structure of the bark on the tree that we forget what the tree looks like. Now, the point here that Paul is making is very, very simple. And that point is that... I didn't consult with anybody. I got my authority 
and the spiritual gift of apostle and the commission to be an apostle directly from Jesus Christ. You think that's a point of criticism, but that's a point of honor. That's what he's saying. He's being criticized by the Judaizers. They're saying, look, he didn't have anything to do with Jerusalem, so he's not an apostle. And he's saying, exactly right. I didn't have anything to do with Jerusalem. I got my apostleship directly from Jesus Christ because men cannot make give the spiritual gift. It's not up to the apostles in Jerusalem to distribute spiritual gifts. It's up to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit to distribute spiritual gifts. And I got the spiritual gift of apostle directly at the point of my salvation from Jesus Christ. He commissioned me at that point on the road to Damascus. So the fact that I have nothing to do with the the crowd down in Jerusalem just validates and verifies my authority as an apostle. That this took place in the plan of God. Okay, let's start looking at verse 15. But when He who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb. Now, last week I made a point out of this. I want to go over it one more time. Make sure you understand it. This phrase is in the Greek is ek koilia. Ek plus the genitive of separation, which means that the issue here is separation. Ek is the preposition ek, which means from or out from. Koilia is K-O-I-L-I-A, and it means the womb, literally. But this phrase is what's called a Hebraism or an Aramaism. Now, that means that it has its origin in the Hebrew or Aramaic language. It's not necessarily a native Greek idiom. An idiom is a figure of speech. We tell somebody to... I remember this from seventh grade when I was taught what idioms were. We tell somebody to go jump in the lake. We don't literally mean to go jump in the lake. That's just a figure of speech. We just want them to to leave. So um, a, a figure of speech means it's not taken literally, but it has a fuller connotation. And that connotation is uh, should be translated from birth. And the translators of the New International Version correctly understand that and translate it as such. See, the Scriptures clearly define that the parameters of human existence are birth and death. Over and over again, the Scriptures talk about birth and death. You never see the Scriptures anywhere talk about from, from conception to death. It's always birth to death, birth to death. This is the parameters of full human life. At the point of conception... When the egg is fertilized by the sperm, you have the origin of biological life. According to Psalm 139, God is involved in the development of biological life, and that is in the womb. And that's a different phrase than the one we're talking about. It's the phrase in koilia. In the Hebrew there, it is the phrase ba-beten, which is b-e-b-e-b-e. T-E-N. This word right here is the preposition in. In the Greek, it would be the preposition E-N. In, not ek, but in the womb. 
But that's not what we that's what we find in Psalm 139 when it's talking about biological life. But whenever we have passages in the Old Testament, for example, in, in Jeremiah 1, where Jeremiah says, I was called from my mother's womb, and many other passages that relate to that, very similar to the one we're in, the phrase that we find in the Hebrew is the phrase, Mebet. That's M-I-B-E-T-E-N. The word for womb plus the preposition M-I, which means from or out from. And this is accurately translated by some of the modern translations as meaning from, from birth. In Hebrew, there was no noun for birth. So they used a figure of speech to express the idea of birth. That's when the fetus emerges from the womb. That's birth. And so the parameters for human existence are birth and death. This is the same for spiritual life. Jesus did not tell Nicodemus, you must be conceived again. He said you must be born again. Because the issue is what happens at birth. That is the beginning of our human existence. When at that moment, with our first breath, the Hebrew called it Neshema, when God breathed the breath of lives into Adam when he created him. At that point, God simultaneously creates and imparts to us a human soul. And at that point, we become a living soul. So Paul here says that from the moment of his birth, from birth, at that point, God had a plan for his life. That's what it means when it says, when he had set me apart. God had a plan for his life. Even though he wasn't a believer yet, God knew that eventually he would be and had a plan for his life. And then it says, and called me through his grace. Now this is a very important doctrine that is misunderstood by a lot of people. So I want to take some time to go through the doctrine of calling. The doctrine of the divine call. The doctrine of the divine call. We have to understand this and this gets into some very sticky doctrines that some people have a lot of difficulty understanding. So we'll take our time and hopefully you'll understand it. If you don't understand it this time, we'll go through it again and again eventually as time goes by. This is what I call spiritual steak. Some of you are just eating spiritual pablum. Others of you have moved up to uh, uh, maybe a few pureed vegetables or a few other little things. Now, at times you will hear some doctrines that are just a little bit tough and meaty for you to understand. That's okay. Just use it as an opportunity of uh, familiarization. This is a familiarization tour of the doctrine of calling, which relates to predestination, election, uh, sovereignty of God, free will of man, and some very tough issues. So, um, you know, if this is a little too tough for you, don't try to chew it all up and swallow it now. Just um, take it, set it aside, and when you grow a little bit, and after you've learned a few more things from the Scriptures, then you'll be able to grasp it. We all go through this, and when we come to this particular subject, it's a little tough for some of us to, to handle it. So if you're not ready, just set it aside, okay? Let's start off. Point number one comes from the Greek word kaleo. K-A-L-E-O, which surprisingly enough means to call, to summons. To invite, 
number of other meanings related to that. Theologically, the concept of the divine call has been broken down. Now, this isn't scripturally. This is in terms of theologically. It's been broken down into two subcategories. A general call, when we talk about just the public proclamation of Scripture, that's a general call. When God, through the proclamation of the Scripture, invites everyone to accept the free gift of Jesus Christ as their Savior. That's the general call. That is not the subject that we're talking about. We're not talking about the public proclamation of the Gospel. What we're talking about in this particular verse and in this subject is the more technical meaning of the divine call. This has to do with the ministry of God the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation in making the Gospel clear to the unbeliever so that they will respond with faith alone in Christ alone. So it comes from the Greek word kaleo. Point number two, let's have a precise definition. This is the work of God the Holy Spirit toward believers only. Unbelievers are never recipients of this call. Now that may surprise some of you. That's something we need to pay attention to. This is something that God the, God the Holy Spirit only does to unbelievers. I mean, to believers, those who will be believers. At that moment, they're not believers, but they will be. He never performs this to anyone who stays an unbeliever, and we'll see why we can say that in just a minute. The work of God the Holy Spirit toward believers only, prior to their salvation, to make the gospel clear so that they will believe in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. One more time, for those of you who are trying to get it all down, I know you have to learn to work to write fast and avoid getting that writer's cramp. The work of God the Holy Spirit toward believers only prior to their salvation to make the gospel clear so that they will believe in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Calling always refers to those who do believe, and God the Holy Spirit will never call an unbeliever who does not believe. Never happens. Let's see why we say that. Hold, keep your place there in Galatians, but turn with me to Romans 8, 29 and 30. And in Romans 8, 29 and 30, we have what I call the chain of predestination. Now, don't let that word scare you a whole lot. It's a pretty simple concept, although it has a lot of uh, uh, tough meanings. And I've taken a number of, over the years, I've taken a number of courses that relate to this. And, and you can get into this just as deeply as you want to, or as superficially as you want to. But we, just, we don't want to try to cross every T and dot every I this morning. But we want to make sure we cover it adequately so that you have a basic understanding of this material and at some later date, we may uh, uh, take it apart in, in detail. What we find in this verse, these two verses, is a complete chain of events that culminate in the believer's glorification in verse 30. Let me read the verses to you. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. 
And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So let's begin by just noting the chain. Starts off with foreknowledge. So we have foreknowledge here. And then it moves to predestination. And then it moves from predestination in verse 30 to calling, justification, and then glorification. Now we have to understand the time breakdown here. Foreknowledge and predestination take place in eternity past. Calling and justification take place in time during the believer's life. And glorification takes place in eternity future. I want to work backward on this verse so you understand who we're talking about. The final goal is that there is a group of people that are glorified. These. A set group of people. These He glorified. Who does God glorify in this passage? Look back to the previous phrase. Those whom He justified. So God glorifies every single person He justifies. He doesn't lose anybody. Everybody that's justified by faith alone in Christ alone will be glorified. They will receive a resurrection body in heaven. Okay? Now, who does God justify? Whom He justified. Who does He justify? Whom He called these. No more and no less. Whom He calls these He justifies. So, He justifies, just as in glorification, He glorifies everyone who is justified no more and no less. In justification, He justifies everyone He calls no more and no less. So that means that there are people He does not call, minus the call. Those people are not justified. Who gets justified? Those He calls. So this isolates it. The same group that's glorified is everybody that's called. The same group that's called are those that are predestined. That's what it says. Whom He predestined, these He called. So this refers to a set group of people back here in eternity past. This set group of people that are predestined, those He calls. He doesn't call those who aren't predestined. Never does. Those whom He predestines are those whom He foreknew. That's the beginning of verse 29. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined. Those whom He predestined, He calls. Those He calls, He justifies. Those He justifies are glorified. This is the chain. So we have a set group of people X. Let's say X represents 50 million people. Maybe more, maybe less, but just for illustration, X represents 50 million people. He foreknows 50 million people. He predestines those 50 million people. Not 50 million in one, not 49,999,999, but that same group, X, 50 million. Those same 50 million in time, He's going to call. 
No more, no less. These He called. Not another group. Not less, not more. These He calls. That means God the Holy Spirit is going to work specifically in the lives of X in order to make sure they understand the Gospel because at Gospel hearing, they will respond by faith alone in Christ alone. So those He called, these He justified. Those He justified, these He glorified. Now, that sets up the chain. That's the only reason I wanted to go to that passage was to demonstrate the fact that this ministry of calling is clearly restricted in Scripture to those who end up in heaven. doesn't call those who don't end up in heaven. That's point three. That brings us to point three. The means of the divine call... Or, excuse me, this means that the divine call is the work of God the Holy Spirit in applying the elective decree of God. Now, that brings a whole new word here. We're going to stop in a minute. And we're going to define these terms because that's the most important part here that we're going to come to. That God the Holy Spirit applies the elective decree of God to the individual at the moment of salvation. Okay. Now, I know that there may be some questions in your mind. We're going to try to answer them at this point. We've set the definition. We've talked about who's involved in the divine call. On the Godward side, it's a ministry of God the Holy Spirit. On the human side, it is every unbeliever who will, at gospel hearing, respond positively to the gospel. And that brings us to point number four. Calling in itself does not limit the application of the gospel. This is not some independent doctrine that you can divorce from everything else that Scripture teaches about human volition and divine sovereignty and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's the problem people get into when they start talking about the doctrines related to predestination, election, calling, and all these things is they want to isolate these apart from other things that the Scripture teaches. Calling does not limit the application of the Gospel. That is done by God the Father on the basis of three things. Omniscience, foreknowledge, and foreordination. So let's define our terms here. We have to define each of these terms to make sure we understand what's going on. Calling in itself does not limit the application of the gospel. That's limited by human volition. That is done by God the Father on the basis of His omniscience, foreknowledge, and foreordination. Remember, in the Council of Divine Decrees, time begins at point X with the creation of the universe. The Council of Divine Decrees takes place in eternity past. And at that point, one of the decrees is that that divine sovereignty, DS, and human volition will coexist together in human history. God's sovereignty is not going to violate human volition, but neither does human volition dictate divine sovereignty. That's the tension that we all hold in this subject. Human volition is never autonomous or independent from divine sovereignty, but divine sovereignty will never dictate or arbitrarily control or violate human volition. You always have to maintain that principle. When you don't, you will get into problems. Now, let's define omniscience. 
Omniscience is the big circle. This circle describes all of God's knowledge. Now, a circle automatically limits, but God's knowledge is not limited. Omniscience literally means all-knowing. It comes from the Latin words omni, meaning all, and science, meaning knowledge. And it means that God knows all the knowable. He has complete, simultaneous... These are three important words. He has complete, simultaneous... That means that at one moment He knows everything together simultaneously. Complete, simultaneous, and eternal knowledge of all things. That means there never was a time in God that He did not know all the knowable simultaneously. And all the knowable includes all the actual and all the possible. He knows, let's say you could make, you had a choice between ten different options. Ten different jobs that would take you, each job would take you to ten different cities, some in this country, some overseas. God knows which job you will take. Number three. But He also knows what those other seven options are and what would happen, where you would live, how much money you would make, whether you would be a success or failure, how many promotions you would receive, who your friends would be, where you would live, what you would eat, what your life would be like in each of those other, excuse me, other uh, nine options. So, nine are possible. He knows everything that would happen there, and he knows what the one actual will be. So, God knows all the knowable. Omniscience describes God's complete, eternal, and simultaneous knowledge of everything. It's all comprehensive. His knowledge of all actual and possible past, present, and future events. It knows, comprehends at once all their causes, conditions, and relations from the most vast to the most minute. He comprehends them as one indivisible system of things, every part of which is, in, is essential to the integrity of the whole. Now that's a definition that you can probably chew on for at least the next two or three weeks. That covers a tremendous amount of territory. Foreknowledge is a subcategory of God's omniscience. So we're narrowing the focus. Omniscience covers all the actual and all the possible. Everything that would, everything that could, everything that will happen. In foreknowledge, we see that this is a specialized subcategory of God's omniscience, related to His eternal knowledge about the thoughts, motives, decisions, and actions of believers. So foreknowledge has as its object the thoughts, motives, actions of believers. So it's, it's restrictive. Divine omniscience knows all things actual and potential. And in the, if we set up a timeline... There is no time with God. Remember that. We're just going to set this up to describe, not really time, but logical relations. This is not temporal. There's no before and after with God. This just describes the logical relation 
between these things. First, there is the omniscience of God. Then there is the eternal decree of God related to human history. Then there is His foreknowledge. Then there is His election. And then predestination. So this is the the logical relationship of these terms. Foreknowledge only confirms what has been decreed. It does not predetermine those events in human history or violate human volition. It merely confirms what God has decreed. In His omniscience, He knows the actual and the possible and He decrees that course of actual which will bring Him the highest and greatest glory in relation to the angelic conflict. That course of eternal... That decree, again, includes the principle that human sovereignty coexists in human... human, I mean, divine sovereignty coexists in human history with human volition. Foreknowledge then confirms what has been decreed and does not predetermine those events or violate human volition. Election is then the expression of God's selection of different groups for different purposes throughout the course of human history. There are three elections given in the Scripture. Israel is elected under the Old Testament plan of God. Christ is elect under the plan of God in relation to salvation. And the church is selected by God in relationship to His plan in fulfilling the angelic conflict. Election is declared on the basis coexists in human history with human volition. Okay, what have I said? We need a little mental break here. That's some pretty heavy stuff. We need to get the chewing gum out and sort of pop our ears a minute. Well, basically what we're saying is God elects and chooses believers not in violation of their volition. God doesn't reach down there and twist something inside of you to make you believe or not believe. You have volition. You have individual responsibility. God in His omniscience comprehends all the knowable instantly and simultaneously and has for eternity. He decrees what will be actual. On the basis of understanding what will actually happen in human history, in other words, understanding that you, at the point of gospel hearing, will respond positively to the gospel, that others, given an accurate understanding of the gospel, will never, under any circumstances, respond positively to the gospel. God decrees that those who will respond positively to the gospel will be saved. Those are, they are elect. God then operates in terms of God the, sending God the Holy Spirit to make the gospel clear. Remember, as an unbeliever, you, are, you have a body and a soul. This is called dichotomous. D-I-C-H-O-T-O-M-O-U-S. Two parts. Dichotomous. You don't have a human spirit. Adam was created with a human spirit, but when he sinned, he lost his human spirit. He was separated from God. That's what is called spiritual death. 
no human spirit. And the Bible calls this kind of person a natural man. That's the word. It's a bad translation in 1 Corinthians 2.12. It should be translated the soulish man because the Greek word is pneumatikos from pneuma, meaning, meaning a soul. So it's the, the soulish man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. Or it's a, excuse me, the Sukikos man. The Sukikos man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God because he just has a soul, a suke, a soul. So what, has, what does he have to have to understand spiritual things? This thing called the human spirit. Only with the human spirit can he understand the things of the Spirit of God, including the gospel. So a gospel hearing, what happens is the evangelist here, or any person, any Christian witnessing to an unbeliever, communicates the gospel. Because he doesn't have a human spirit, God, the Holy Spirit, functions as a human spirit in that individual to make the gospel information clear. That individual hears it, and it is transferred as into the left lobe of the soul called the mind or the nous, nous in Greek, the nous, N-O-U-S, where it is understood academically. Now, at that point, he has to make a decision. And positive or negative to the gospel, if he responds positively with faith alone in Christ alone, then he becomes a believer and it is transferred and becomes epinosis or full knowledge or experiential knowledge. And at that point, God the Father takes the faith. The faith God, excuse me, God the Holy Spirit takes the faith of a spiritually dead person. Remember, you're spiritually dead at that point. You can't do anything for your salvation. Your faith is meaningless. Faith is non-meritorious. It's the object of faith that matters. The object of your faith is Jesus Christ. If it's faith that saves, as opposed and the kind of faith, which is the lordship position, the kind of faith that saves, that the object doesn't matter. What matters is what kind of faith. So then you find Christians running around trying to figure out if they have the right kind of faith. Well, how do you know what kind of faith is saving faith? You don't. Because all faith is faith. It's the object. Faith itself is not the issue. The faith doesn't save you. You're not saved. It's not the cause of your faith. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace... Remember this. Every one of you should have this memorized. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For by grace are you saved through faith. Now, I always go back to the Greek because that's the original language of the New Testament that was inspired verbally by God the Holy Spirit. Okay? You're saved through faith. In the Greek, that's a construct, the preposition is dia, D-I-A, through. Or it can mean cause. But it determines what the word is after it. The case. This is why grammar is so important. Grammar is essential to understanding the New Testament. For by grace are you saved through faith. If it was dia plus the accusative, then you would translate it cause. That's how you express cause in the Greek language. Dia plus the accusative. For by grace are you saved because of faith. But the cause of your salvation isn't your faith. So you're not saved because of faith. You're saved through faith. It's means. You're saved because Jesus Christ died on the cross as your substitute. For by grace are you saved through faith. The cause of your faith is the love of God sending Jesus Christ to die on the cross 
for your sins as your substitute. That's why you're saved. That's what saves you. What saves you isn't your faith. That's the means by which God the Father applies salvation to you. So, at this point, the faith that you express, that this unbeliever expresses, is the faith of a spiritually dead person. And God the Holy Spirit then takes that faith and makes it efficacious. That means He makes it work. Makes it count for something because the object of the faith is the cross. Jesus Christ alone. Does that make sense? So when we come down to it, the calling that is used here is because in eternity past, God knew that this person here is going to express faith alone in Christ alone in God consciousness that He sends the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit makes the Gospel clear. Point five. Calling is therefore related to God's election based on His foreordination. Those who are foreordained are those God the Holy Spirit calls because in His omniscience God knows that all others would reject Christ at gospel hearing. So that means God just doesn't waste effort. It's called economy of force in terms of military principles. You don't waste the Holy Spirit calling people who no matter what happens are going to reject the gospel. Point six. Calling is therefore related to the operation of efficacious grace. At the point of gospel hearing, the individual expresses faith alone in Christ alone, yet that is the faith of a spiritually dead unbeliever, and God the Holy Spirit makes that faith count because the object is Christ alone, and Christ did all the work. We do nothing. Not even our faith is a work. Some people will try to get you to do that. With Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. It. What is the gift? It is a gift of God. And they'll go to the Greek and they'll say, well, it there is, I believe it's a neuter, and it doesn't refer to, to for by grace you say through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. The faith is a, is, is a, uh, is a uh, pistis, is a masculine noun, or feminine noun, so it doesn't refer to that, and they'll get all wrapped around the axle trying to figure out how the, 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 uh, the pronoun relates back to the, uh, to the noun, what the antecedent of that pronoun is according to Case. Well, the reason it doesn't agree is because it's picking up the whole phrase. The whole phrase is for by grace are you saved through faith. It's not referring to faith. It's not referring to saved. It's not referring to grace. It's referring to for by grace are you saved through faith. It is the gift of God. The whole process of salvation by, by faith, uh, by, by grace through faith, is the issue there in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. So God the Holy Spirit saves us. It is not because of faith, but through faith. It is simply the means. And that brings us to point seven. It is consistent. All of this is consistent with the principle that God decreed in eternity past that divine sovereignty and human volition would coexist in human history. And the divine call always operates through two means. They're always there. God the Holy Spirit isn't going to call somebody unless everything happens together. And the two things that are always there is, number one, the grace of God, and that's what we find in our passage here in Galatians 1.15, that the Apostle Paul says that he was called by means of the grace of God. I've got to find my passage again. Galatians 1, 
15. And called me through His grace. It is Dio, interesting construction in the Greek, Dio plus the, the uh, genitive of means. Called me by means of His grace. And the second thing that is always present is the gospel of faith alone in Christ alone. This is in Second Thess. Second Thessalonians 2.14 So God the Holy Spirit calls through the grace of God and through the gospel of faith alone in Christ alone. They're not separated. You never find... The Holy Spirit's not going to go out there and call somebody to salvation apart from faith alone in Christ alone. It isn't going to happen. And nobody will ever express faith alone in Christ alone without God the Holy Spirit calling them first, first of all. It always works together. Point number eight. The divine call is the second step in the order that we find in Romans 8, or the third step in the order we find in Romans 8, 28 through 30. Back it up here. See if we can go back to our chain. Foreknowledge, predestination, calling. This happens in time in the believer's life. At the time of gospel hearing, God the Holy Spirit makes the gospel clear to them and then they believe in Christ alone, faith alone in Christ alone, and they are justified for eternity. Romans 8, 28-30 gives us the order. Technically, this is called the ordo salutis. It's the order of salvation. The, 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 uh, and that's the order of these events. Point number nine, there are five or six purposes to the divine call. Six purposes to the divine call. First of all, you're called into fellowship with God. 1 Corinthians 1.9 We are to have rapport. Think about this a minute. It's nice to write it down, and you need to write it down, but I want you to stop and contemplate this a minute. God the Father, in eternity past, made it a point to send His Son... Jesus Christ, to die on the cross as your substitute so that you can have personal rapport with Him. So that you can have a personal relationship with Him. That is incredible. That is what you need to be thinking about every day. Is that He called you for a purpose to have fellowship with Him to have rapport with Him, to have intimate conversation with Him throughout the course of your life. That's why God called you. Secondly, God called you for freedom. 1 Corinthians also, um, 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful through whom you were called in fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's the, the first verse, fellowship with Him. You're called for freedom. You called, uh, I think that's in Galatians. I didn't write down the scripture on that. I'll have to get that later. Uh, You're called for eternal life, not simply eternal existence. Remember this. We're going to see this over and over again in the Gospel of John. Eternal life is not eternal existence. It's life. It's a quality of life. It's a significance to life. It's not just always living. It is a quality, a depth of life. And that depth comes to you. At the cross, you have eternal life. That means you're never going to die. You're going to spend eternity in heaven. You'll die physically, but never spiritually. You'll have an eternal uh, resurrection body 
in heaven forever and ever and ever. But eternal life is a quality of life that comes only from learning doctrine. Why do you come here on Sunday morning twice and should be here on Wednesday night? It's so you learn doctrine so you can develop capacity for life. Capacity for life is why God saved you. Jesus said, I didn't come like a faith to steal and destroy. I came to give you life and to give it abundantly. But that doesn't just happen by being saved. That's only the starting point. What you have to do is get involved in learning doctrine so that you can develop capacity for life. That's 1 Timothy 6.12. Fourth, spiritual growth. God saved you to grow spiritually, not just to remain a spiritual baby. Ephesians 4.1 I therefore the prisoner of the Lord entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Calling is to walk worthy. That's the spiritual life. To go forward. Not just to stay there, but to move forward. Point number five, the purpose for the divine call is to suffer. Oh, doesn't that just make our hearts sore? To know that we are called to suffer. 1 Peter 2.20 For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it and don't whine and groan and moan about it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose. That is, to suffer when you don't deserve it. You have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His footsteps. And then six, we are called to glorify God in the angelic conflict. Again, Ephesians 4.1. Why do we walk in a manner worthy of our calling? Because that glorifies God in terms of the angelic conflict. So what we have seen in this verse is that our salvation is no accident. There's a plan and a purpose to it. And God has a plan and a purpose for your life. And that is why you have been brought into this remarkable, incredible relationship with Him. is to go forward, to grow, to reach spiritual maturity so then you can have this rich relationship with Him and only then when you have the capacity to enjoy all that God gives you is He going to give it to you? Because God's not going to bless us beyond our capacity because that will destroy us. God will only bless us to the degree that we have the capacity to enjoy it and appreciate it and not let it destroy us and destroy our relationship with Him. So let us bow our heads and close our eyes and we'll close in prayer. Father, we do thank You for this tremendous doctrine. It's hard for us to grasp these things. There are many intricate issues that are difficult for us to tie together because indeed we are dealing with things that have to do with your eternal and infinite purposes and your thoughts are not our thoughts and your ways are not our ways and and ultimately when we try to put together with our temporal minds these things that have eternal uh, significance that, that we falter. Our minds just do not have the capacity to understand and put together every single detail. That does not excuse us from trying but makes us realize the difficulty of the task and the enormity of your person. And Father, we thank you for our salvation, that it is by faith alone, in Christ alone. And we ask that you, as we close now, that you uh, take these things, help us to understand them, store them in our souls, that as we contemplate on them, and as we think about them, that God the Holy Spirit will make them clear and bring them to our minds as we need to apply them. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.